Simple Beep, episode 54, The Newton Community. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Newton community on today's episode. So last episode, we talked about the history of the Newton, the creation of the project, and the various pieces of hardware that were part of the Newton series and the Newton platform. And we got a lot of follow-up uh, from a lot of Newton enthusiasts. So this episode, we've actually brought some of those people onto the show to tell us more about the Newton, maybe some things that we missed and their experiences with the Newton and how the Newton still does have an active community around it. Before we get to that, first, we have a couple quick pieces of follow-up. And the first one is about one of the Newton devices. Yes, in our episode, I mentioned that the eMate had the same sized screen as the 2000 series message pads that were released around the same time. But this is incorrect. While they had the same resolution, which is where I draw my foolish assumption from, uh, the eMate screen size was noticeably bigger. Some sources say that the eMate was around 6.8 inches, I believe on the diagonal, and through some uh, Pythagorean theorem, <laughs> the 2000 series was around 5.9. So it's kind of a reverse iPad mini type situation. Where same, same number of pixels, different density. Yeah. And one other quick piece of follow-up, not Newton-related, but it was about something that we talked about last episode, was we put a link to a Kickstarter project for cancel and save notepads that have the classic Mac cancel and save style buttons at the bottom with Chicago font. And the Kickstarter was funded. And so if you supported that, you're going to be getting a lovely little notepad in the mail. And I filled out my Kickstarter uh, info survey today, you know, like where do, where should it be shipped? And it had some follow-up questions. So it sounds like if you didn't back the Kickstarter, you haven't entirely missed out because it sounds like he wants to not only continue producing these at a uh, at a cost that is effective for to, to be a business and a product, but also looking into other things like maybe uh, smaller ones like sticky note size ones and uh, related products. So uh, I think that's uh, going to be a cool little line of products that will continue into the future as long as Apple doesn't bring the band hammer down on it. <laughs> so now let's get into our discussion for today. And like I said, we have a couple of guests on the show. So first, I'd like to welcome Jake Bordens. Hi there. Glad to be here. Thanks for joining us. And we also have Thomas Brand, a.k.a. Egg Freckles. Hey, how's it going? Good. So you know that you're in the company of Newton experts when their Twitter handles and websites are in jokes about the Newton. So uh, we definitely uh, we definitely feel like uh, this is a great group to have together to talk about what the Newton was like and what the Newton community is like today. So just to start off, uh, we wanted to ask you when you actually got involved with the Newton. So we, we talked last episode that the Newton series began in 93, ran through the late 90s. But when did you first get your hands on a Newton? Well, I had just graduated high school and a friend of mine and I went to, uh, it was called PC Expo back then, uh, at the Jacob Javits Convention Center in New York City. And actually, there was an upstairs room that I think it was called Mac OS Expo, which had most of the Apple-related stuff. But Apple had really invested in a large presence on the main show floor for the Newton. And uh, both my friend and I kind of fell in love with the device, and we went home and immediately figured out how we could each get our own. And I think, you know, they were pretty expensive. Like, with the keyboard and everything, it was like 1200 bucks. So it was a pretty sizable investment for, for a couple kids just going into college. But... Uh, you know, I took all my notes in uh, in college on it, and uh, you know, it really became uh, part of like my everyday workflow. Was that a pretty out of the ordinary workflow for compared to what else was going on in your college classrooms? Well, um, you know, I went to Carnegie Mellon University, so there was a lot of weird stuff going on. You know, robots running across campus and things like that. But uh, you know, it was very early in kind of the internet connected era. Uh, we had one of the first wireless networks. Uh, it was actually two megabit Waveland, if I recall back then. And uh, you know, so having having a device uh, on wireless was was kind of unique uh, at that point in time. Uh, this was like in the 1997 timeframe, but uh, it, it was great. It, it did it did attract kind of uh, you know interested looks, but uh, 
you know, it was short lived, unfortunately, because, you know, within uh, within a year, we we started to hear the, uh, you know, spinoff rumors, and then they spun it off. And then shortly thereafter, when Steve came back, that was the end of the road. And how about you, Thomas? Well, I'm kind of late to the Noon game as well. Uh, I grew up with Max, like you guys, and I remember the Noon being announced at uh, like Macworld 1993 in Boston because I'm from the area. But I was uh, what, like 10 or 11 at the time. Um, so I, you know, it was a while before I actually got to experience uh, using a message pad aside from seeing them on X Files. <laughs> When I really first got exposed to it was actually when I started working as a Mac genius uh, for Apple in around 2004. One of the guys that I went out for genius training when they used to ship uh, the Mac geniuses out to uh, Cupertino was this guy named David Getson, and he actually brought his message pad. Didn't bring a laptop, didn't bring you know a PowerBook or an iBook or anything. Uh, brought his message pad, and that's what he took notes on the entire time during the training. And that was like my first time actually experiencing not only a, a new message pad, but I mean, this guy had it all tricked out. He had a wireless card, Bluetooth card. He was, uh, you know, sending email from it. He was doing all these things that I didn't, frankly, I, you know, I, I was familiar with the product and the specs, but I didn't know it was possible. And that really got me interested in, uh, in uh, Newtons and message pads and uh, the community at large. That's kind of amazing. That's like living the iPad-only lifestyle before the iPad was even a thought. If I remember right, he, uh, you know, they let you in, in those days. You could uh, get your Apple ID uh, card taken, a picture taken, however you like it. And I think he had his uh, taken with his holding his Newton. So, Thomas, did you um, eventually acquire a Newton? And if so, like, did you try and trick it out to do similar things? Yeah. So when I got back from training, you know, I worked as a Mac genius for about a year or so. Um, and during that time, uh, the previous lead Mac genius at my store, he actually bought one. So I'm like, oh, my God, I'm being surrounded by Newtons. And, uh, you know, it was kind of interesting seeing uh, what you could do with them. And I was very interested in the whole um uh, using a Newton as a web server, uh, not only just for the community, but I thought, wow, wouldn't this be interesting if I could have a blog and I could have a, uh, it actually hosted on a Newton? And what if I made it look like a Newton? And that, that in initial idea, uh, kind of failed pretty quickly because, uh, believe it or not, you know, a, a, a 167 megahertz, uh, message pad, uh, doesn't exactly hold well to, uh, web traffic. Um, so, you know, I, I ended up porting uh, what I designed as a theme to a, to a WordPress site and then uh, some other different content management systems. But I guess the rest is history, because if I'm known for one thing on the Internet, it's that I have a website that looks like a Newton. My favorite thing about Egg Freckles is that it is a uh, reactive design Newton. <laughs> so that if you actually if you make it the window small enough for like a mobile dimensions, it pretends to just be the screen. And then if you pop out to a full desktop window that you get a nice little hardware border around it. So I think the, uh, the more modern approach, uh, definitely has its, its benefits as well. Well, thank you. I mean, originally the site started out to try to emulate a Newton as much as possible. It had a drawer, it had sound effects, it has a backlight. If it, well, it still has a backlight, but um, but you know, I was like, what am I doing this for? Am I doing this to share, to to write, or to you know emulate a Newton in HTML? And so it's kind of a, a happy medium right now. Yeah, uh, one of uh, the people who wrote in and we tried to get on this show, but uh, the time differences were, were too large, was uh, Pavel Petrovsky, who is running or overseeing a similar effort of a, a network of Newtons acting as web servers. I think his uh, the Twitter handle is at I-N-D-I-G-I underscore Newton, and uh, there's a website that goes along with it, so we'll put that in the show notes. Some people are, are still trying to keep that dream alive. It does seem like a pretty uh, tough goal because, yeah, you're working within constraints of some pretty limited hardware, not just from the processing power of the device itself, but also from connectivity. Right. I mean, the, the really cool aspect of it is the integration. So, yeah, you can host a website on it, and it's basically like a static website that people can visit. But the fact that they can actually post a message 
to your Newton and that you can like log on and see in the notes uh, application or that they can see a screenshot or actually like search the, the files on your Newton straight from a web page. That was the kind of integration that I always thought was intriguing. You know, what if you can make a website that looks like a Newton that actually has a Newton as the back end? Um, and, I, you know, there's lots of jokes about hosting a website on everything from a, you know, a computer to a toaster to whatever. But that kind of integration is something you don't normally see. Right. Because no one even goes around talking about like, oh, I'm going to host a website from my iPhone, even though that would be completely possible in terms of like always on network connectivity and processing power. It's just like not something that even in like the jailbreaking community seems to be a thing that people are really particularly interested in doing. So it is. It, it does have some of that allure of just being a challenge. But yeah, those additional features of this service, the uh, the Newton Personal Data Server, which I guess was just it, it, it's built in, right? Well, it's a it's an application that you install. You know, this is the the benefits of this whole Newton community. Is someone decided at some point this was something that they wanted to do, and they made a package for it. Um, I don't think anyone ever intended that the Newton, you know, message pad, the first personal data assistant, would actually be a web server. Um, because when the Noon was initially, you know, designed, it didn't have wireless networking or Ethernet. Now, Ethernet was something that Apple added in, but um, the fact that you could do a web server from it, this is something that the fans brought to the platform. And that's one of the important things about the Newton in its heyday and now as a kind of homebrew and enthusiast community is the fact that it's a completely open platform as opposed to something like iOS. Well, it's still limited by the fact that it's, you know, based on a proprietary software that's baked into a ROM that we have no control over. But it's it, it's amazing how far the community has gone at extending those uh, capabilities or, or fighting against those restrictions. I mean, as I said, it's got Bluetooth. You can do uh, wireless networking now. People are hosting web servers, but also people are emulating it in ways that it was never uh, you know, intended to emulate this uh, OS on everything from uh, Android to iOS to Linux to Mac OS X. So, um, I'm just always been amazed at how far people have pushed the platform, even after Apple turned out the lights. It's one of the things that, uh, you know, I find interesting is kind of the reverse engineering aspect of, you know, the, the ROM. And one of the things that like is still kind of surprising to me is yeah, we are talking about an ARM V6 processor. That's the same essential instruction set in the first iPhone. So a lot of the reverse engineering tools that, you know, you can get today for, examining iOS binaries, disassemblers, and things like that work on a Newton assembly just as, as readily as they would on an iPhone uh, binary. And so, you know, it, it's it's part of the fun is kind of doing that archaeology. And, and there was just a lot of really clever things that Apple did to make the devices functional uh, and as feature rich as they did given the constraints of of rom and flash and 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 power uh that you know it, it, it's it's just amazing to some extent and you can read some of the stories some of the early newtons where you know they they had to patch them in the box and things like that but uh but uh you know by the time the message pad 2000 came came around uh, and and eventually the twenty one hundred. I mean, it was it was a pretty well developed system with, um, you know, not only uh, internet connectivity but uh, even some other hardware accessories. Um, and uh, it it was a it was a computer unto itself. Uh, and you know, I often wonder, you know, if it hadn't been canceled, where would it be? Yeah, I don't know that it would have ever you know survived to this day, kind of thing. I mean, I think that. There are still some constraints that that maybe uh, were just inherent in its design, but you know it 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 was very unique for its time. I mean, you got to keep in mind that like com competitor products were Palm Pilots with 16 megahertz uh, processors, and this was uh, you know 162 megahertz, 167, 162. I was wrong. You're right. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, the, the, the message pad 2000 had two, uh, PCM CIA slots because people wanted to have an added storage card as well as a connectivity card, whether that be a modem or an ethernet card or eventually wireless. 
Um, you know, there were computers back then that didn't even have two slots. Well, most computers didn't have two slots. And now Apple makes computers with no slots and no ports. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and, and you know, uh, uh, as you're aware that you know, there was a third slot on the inside that was intended, I believe, for a modem, uh, just a built-in modem that was never made uh, by Apple. And, uh, you know, one of the one of the really fun things is on the United Network of Newton Archives, uh, UNNA.org for those. And that's that's a, a site that hosts pretty much all of the packages and software that, you know, uh, we have been able to dig up over the years. Um, there are some documents from like design spec uh, documents for the Newton. And uh, some of them even have like a Apple, Apple confidential stamp. On them, oh. which you know someone le- someone leaked them, and we thank that person, whoever it is, because uh, I'd love to have more resources like that to look at, but uh yeah, it's like need to know Apple confidential, and you know you, you could just imagine uh you know when that was stamped, and you know someone someone eventually got it out, whether it be one of the licensees or or something, and that that information is you know used to this day for people who are you know, working on Einstein or, or other projects. Yeah, somebody found it in it in their desk drawer in Apple in 2003 and went, yeah, it probably isn't that confidential anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I always wonder, like, you know, is there, are there troves of information out there that, you know, uh, could find its way into the community? Because, you know, there is a lot of uh, unique things that were made, unique hardware, uh, you know, that... Uh, maybe didn't sell well or um you know only one or two copies exist so you know if 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 any of your listeners do have any any kind of old newton stuff uh you know there's a newton talk email list uh newtontalk.net you know you can go go on and say hey you know i've got an old uh design spec for the uh, cirrus logic voyager chipset we'd love to have it yeah we were hoping to have uh Grant Hutchinson, aka Splorp, uh, who is one of the uh, one of the people who runs the Newton Talk list on the show. He had to uh, he had a family conflict at last minute, and so he wasn't able to join us tonight. We hope to have him on the show uh, sometime in the future. Um, and one of the things I love about the Newton Talk website is that it does have this incredible blend of the classic and the modern. So if you go on their site, they have a mailing list. FAQ page and you click on that and it's hosted on GitHub. And you know, <laughs> this is pertaining to a list that's all about this technology from at least 20 years ago. And so it really is fun to see that uh sort of clash in, of old and new in in that group. Uh stepping back a little bit, we talked about the Newton's uh, ability to connect outward onto networks and community efforts to kind of improve this. Uh, Jake, you even mentioned this rumored internal slot for the modem, and you have specific experience in building a Wi-Fi card for like modern networks that fit into this slot. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about that project? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it, with, with the funny thing about the Newton is that, or with m- my personal experience with the Newton, is that like it always comes back. Like, you know, a, uh, in college, by the end of my my grad year, you know, it was in a drawer. Uh, and you know, then, you know, you find it in a drawer, you take it out and it, and it, and it, and it feels magical and new, just like it always did. And so, um, you know, in the, in the early 2000s, sometimes I, sometime I tried to build a, a Bluetooth card for that slot and, and I failed for various reasons, um, mainly because I didn't really know much about RF design and I still don't. Uh, but, um, nowadays you can get like commodity Wi-Fi modules and the, uh, the Newton's Internet Enabler um, really is designed for uh, it, the Internet Enabler is the software that you use to connect to the Internet. It's it's kind of the, the TCP IP stack on the Newton. And it's really designed in an era of PPP dial up. And so I did some research and I found a commodity Wi-Fi module that had a built in PPP server. So after packaging it on, you know, making a circuit board and, and some um Ancillary hardware; those those specs I mentioned earlier really helped for the pinouts, and there were actually a couple errors that I found that kind of caused me to have to redesign things a couple times. But in the end, I, it's nothing complicated. It's just a you know essentially a 
the Newton thinks it's dialing up to an old PPP dial-up internet service provider, when in reality it's dialing up to this Wi-Fi module that is connected to your your network. And it's it's useful because PCMCIA cards um, of the era didn't support WPA. Well, WPA2 wasn't even a thing yet. And um, later cards are card bus, and card bus is not compatible So with the Newtons. So um, pretty much you would either have to connect using an old uh, Waveland or Orinoco card uh, in the clear, and no one runs their Wi-Fi networks in the clear anymore. Not a good idea these days. <laughs> <laughs> Even, or, you know, w, uh, WEP would work, but that's not secure either. So, so to have a module that allows you to connect uh, to a modern network kind of does open up the ability to to use it again and uh and play with some of that software and and you know but there are other problems that are still kind of limiting your ability to use the newton one of them is that there was never https you know the 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 encryption stack uh on board and that that's a a big project for someone to implement and no one's really stepped up to the plate to do it and i'm not even sure how you would hook it into the the hardware stack. There are, there are smarter people than I, uh, you know, who know more about the Newton, uh, like internals, but you know, so, you know, a lot of sites, you know, you can't even get to cause we're HTTPS, uh, everywhere now. And, uh, so like the web browsers and stuff, and there was never really a good JavaScript stack. And so you, y- you hit limitations, but you know, if you're just trying to export your notes, uh, you know, off your, off your device, um, then, then it's a perfectly, uh, perfectly valid way to do it. And did you say that when you first had a Newton that you actually did have some basic wireless networking on it? Maybe maybe by like the late 90s, like 1999, 1998, um, the, the Waveland, the, the Lucent, um, you know, the early 802.11b stuff started to come down to a price where you can afford it. And um, you know, it, 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 it did work. Um, it was still, even with an ethernet card, whether it be wireless or wired, it was still a, uh, almost a dial up metaphor where like the app would have to like, you know, start up and, and launch the ethernet driver and connect and, you know, get your DHCP. And so it was still like transactional for lack of a better way to, to say it. So that's part of the, I think, uh, you know, what Tom was talking about before, the challenges with running a web server is that it wasn't like an always on internet stack like you expect on a modern device. It was like on demand, probably for battery, probably because, you know, modems were the way you did it most of the time. You know, you, you, know, you watch Under Siege and you see Steven Seagal with his uh, Newton sending a fax. I mean that that's how it was, you know, intended to be used. So um so yeah, so the the funny thing about the the I don't run a, a web server, but I do know that there's another package that you can install with it that, you know, monitors the Newton and when something stalls it reboots and, and restarts because that's the easiest way to keep your uptime is I mean not really uptime but at that point, but is to just reboot and you know, maybe memory leaks, maybe other things eventually catch up with you. Uh and then uh and then you reboot and you know, you're back online. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, battery concerns. What was it like using a Newton as like a daily carry device? How how did they fare in the world compared to the devices that we tend to carry around in our pockets now that we think of as kind of one day charge devices? Oh, you could get a week easy. Uh, I mean, you're you're not you weren't running big radios or anything like that if you if you didn't use the the backlight, the the Newton had a um, a battery tray where you could put regular alkalines in, or you could get a um, a NiCad battery pack for it, um, and uh, you know you could recharge it. It, it was uh, surprisingly uh, good on the battery life, especially if you you know were only using it uh, a couple hours a day. I mean, it, it's not it wasn't the ubiquitous connectivity device that you know modern iPhones are today. I mean, if you try to run wireless on the batteries, you'll just watch your power go right out. <laughs> yeah. But that being said, I mean, the real marvel of all this is if you have a Newton and you put it in a drawer and it sits there for like three years and then you take it out and put fresh batteries in it, it still remembers everything that was on it. And that was pretty revolutionary for 
devices of the time, you know, a Palm Pilot or those early Palm devices, if they run out of battery power, they lose everything. You'd have to sync them back with your computer. And so even early on, the Newton was kind of a standalone device in that way. It's just another way that it was ahead of its time. Yeah, and the uh, transactional nature of the way the the wire the the internet stack was like if you went to send an email, it would connect to the internet, fire up the radios, send the email, and then disconnect. And so you know you didn't really need to have uh, you know always on uh, networking for for the way for the, the model. There was there's an app on the device called InOut, which was again built in an era where you would be disconnected for long periods of time and you would want to queue out your queue up your outbox out with maybe emails or other things and then when you were connected it would connect and you know maybe suck down your mail from a pop server and you know so it was really designed for kind of this burst connectivity um, because that's just the way things were yeah and i think that was an apple feature that was included in many of their products was the notion of having that battery backup, even in early Macs, having the the battery that would uh, keep the clock running, even when the device was, you know, totally out of battery in case of a, of a power book, or uh, if there was a power outage or something like that for a desktop. And uh, that got them into trouble. Sometimes I remember we had a a power Mac 6,100 that had a bug with the battery. And if the, uh, if the battery went dead, you might not be able to start up the the computer at all, which was kind of bad news, uh, especially because they were those weird, uh, weird type of cells that you couldn't just go to the grocery and get a new one. And you certainly couldn't just order one off of Amazon in uh, 1995 <laughs> or, or whenever that happened. But yeah, that was one of the things that uh, they prided themselves on, stood out. Um, I don't. I think by the time that I got into any kind of PDA, and I, I was a, not a Newton person, I was a Palm person from uh, high school and college, pre iPhone, and uh, I think that you could uh, you could run them down at that point. It was some of the later devices, but it was definitely something that was pioneered uh, by the Apple devices, and then other vendors realized that that was a a feature that they absolutely needed to include. Some of the early Newtons, uh, I never had one, but they actually did have a, a backup battery that, and I think they even had like an elaborate like physical interlock that prevented you from removing both the battery and the backup battery. Because if you removed both, then you would lose it. But the 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 twenty one the two thousand and twenty one hundred uh, both had flash, so you know you could leave it without a battery in the in the drawer, as Tom said, and and fire it up, you know. Uh, years later, and all your packages are there. Like the last, I, I found notes on mine. Um, you know, uh, from from college, it, they they uh, they they really had a, a robust kind of storage model. And um, and you know, one of the um, can't remember what show you guys were talking about, but uh, it, oh, it was the Quick Take uh, discussion where you could send your Quick Take into Apple. And have it upgraded. Well, they had a similar similar program for the 2000, where um, you know you could send your your 2000 into Apple, and they would, uh, I guess, replace the main logic board with one that had um, the the four megabytes of flash instead of the one which the 2000 had. So you basically got back a 2100. And I remember sending mine in, and I remember like tormenting the poor people at the other end of the call center, just like, where's my Newton? Where's my Newton? Where's my Newton? <laughs> Can you give me an update? Can you give me an update? Can you give me an update? But, uh, you know, it was, it was yeah, definitely an interesting thing that, you know, Apple provided you the ability to kind of upgrade this. Uh, and, and it was like almost less than a year than after the 2000 came out that they announced the 2100. So, um, you know, I think it, it was, uh, you know, a very rapid development cycle. Yeah. I think on your uh, blog detailing your, um, the the card you made. One of the things you had to do was replace a port cover to kind of accommodate the different internals. And I think you have a note that's like this is where you would get the twenty one hundred sticker if you went through this program. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a little sticker with green letters. The twenty one hundred. It was the only way you could really tell from the outside, other than other than looking at the about screen to see how much memory you had, how much flash storage you had. Um, and uh, you know, it was. Uh, 
it was a big difference. I mean, we're talking machines with four megabytes of storage. I mean, uh, the packages, the software packages you're talking like the largest one that I can remember is like in the 400K range. I'm sure they were bigger. Um, but I mean, full featured software in 400K and that uh, back to like Apple having a really innovative way of, of building the architecture, you know, Newton scripts, the programming language was designed in a with with storage and and being efficient in mind so that you know large portions of the 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 operating system could stay in read only memory essentially burned into the system and um you know you didn't have to like package a lot of frameworks or other associated code it was like the bare minimum that you needed to compile and send for your app uh to to really optimize the use of that limited storage it's all that same kind of clever hacks that made the original Macintosh possible, it sounds like. Yeah, there's some really clever... I mean, it's just amazing to, to see some of the stuff. I mean, you know, they uh, they really went out of their way in some regards to, um, to to optimize for the constraints. And, you know, even the... Even the, the like you said, I think, I think I was reading that the processors that they used originally, some of the early models, they didn't go ARM originally. They were actually developing it for... I think you talked about this, the the AT and T processor or, or whatever, and you know that, that's that's like a, a a big series of hoops to jump through, you know, to maintain two code bases until the decision could be made. So they were really they were really looking for the optimal um, you know optimal design for their constraints. So you're talking about these packages and the ability to add them, and you also mentioned that uh, a lot of your uses were the Typical PDA uses, notes, um, maybe calendar, and those sorts of things. Were there any uh, were there any packages that were among your favorites, or things that stood out, or really extended the Newton when you were using it on a more regular basis? Well, I can. Uh, I, I think I, I think I found a, a post. Uh, I don't know if it was on on your blog, Tom, but someone was talking about some of the software that a company called Tactile made. They made some pretty high quality uh, Newton software. Uh, there was an FTP client, which was very useful. Um, there was a gentleman named Adam Tao. Uh, I think he, his website's still up, tao.com, T-O-W. Um, apologize if I'm pronouncing the name wrong. Um, but um, he had some really great software. Um, um, he had an app called Hypernute, which was essentially an enhanced notes app, both tagging and foldering that you know uh, allowed you to do a lot more with your your Newton and uh, organizing large volumes of notes, very, you know, not quite wiki like, but, you know, kind of a, a early precursor. There were games. Um, I, I don't know, Tom, did you have any favorites? Oh, uh, what was it called? Not Battleship, Sub Hunt. That was a great one. For the most part, though, you know, a lot of people would extend it with dashboards or little extra dock things or uh, the ability to have a background desktop pattern. And, uh, I almost always kept mine just as it was, you know, just with the bare minimum in terms of software that I needed to extend the device's original capabilities. So, like, I used to install things like printer drivers that would let me print to a laser jet printer over the IR so I could, uh, you know, walk into a, a classroom or the, some of the printers that they had at work and point my crazy huge PDA added and print out documents. I don't know. I impressed myself. Um, things like, uh, you know, the ability to get online, but to, to send mail from any note. Uh, one of the great things about the just regular built-in new OS was that it kind of had this document-centric um, model where if you wrote a note and you wanted to share it, you could send that note as a fax or you could email it or you could beam it. And that was all built in as a, what they called routes, but it was kind of like a precursor to iOS's share sheets uh, way back in the 90s. And so, you know, I, I can't say I extended my Newton or have extended it. I still use it, but with that much additional software, just kind of uh, little tweaks and things that allow me to get the notes off my message pad or to, um, you know, send them to people in different ways. Yeah. The more you were talking about that, I was thinking the same thing, share sheet and kind of the more that I learn about the Newton OS, the more, more echoes of it that I see in iOS and even 
even in things where like we're still adding to iOS, you know, iOS is a mature platform now, 10 years old, but like the things that people are talking about on podcasts now, talking about what uh, the latest versions of iOS can do and what could be added in the future. Some of these same kind of things uh, keep coming up or things like, you know, advanced notes management, like, you know, listen to any Apple podcast uh, in, of the past couple months as we're recording this uh, in February of 2017. And they'll be talking about, oh, Bear is this great new advanced notes app that you can use to organize your notes better. And it's almost wiki-like. You can link between notes. And it's like, it's just the same thing over and over. It's that, you know, I mean, obviously, one of the big advantages that we've had in 20 years is the miniaturization of the hardware and lots of fit and finish and polish and computing power. But the fact of it comes down to that once you have a, a handheld device, you still want to do the same kind of things on it. I mean, from my perspective, the the Newton was, I think, a trailblazer in the fact that it did not have a headphone port. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Lightning only. <laughs> Well, one of the things that I really liked about the, you know, really like about the Newton platform that you don't see today is, as I was saying, that document centric uh, model. You start a, you know, a modern computer or a smartphone and you see the sea of apps in front of you. But with the Newton, typically you start it and you go back to the last note that you were taking. And that content, as I said, could be delivered as a note or a fax. It could be emailed. But just the idea of having like this this data structure that you created yourself with simple gestures of drawing across the screen to create a new note or scribbling to cross things out. And that, that data could, it was, uh, you know, infinitely, um, shareable or expandable across, well, maybe not infinite, you know, the Newton had its limitations, but, um, it, you weren't limited to a specific app or sandbox. You could take this data and, and use it in different ways, all from a single application that put your data first. And that's just something you don't generally see nowadays where we have, you know, applications and sandboxes and kind of information silos. Yeah, that idea of data portability and the fact that, yeah, that sounds a little bit more Mac-like, but even... On the Mac, I mean, I know that I rely on third-party utilities to achieve a lot of that same kind of portability. Like, I'm a heavy LaunchBar user, and I know that I can select pretty much anything and invoke LaunchBar and then send it somewhere else. But I also know that even other savvy Mac users who see me moving files and text and images and stuff around that way kind of look at look over my shoulder and go. How, how are you doing that? What's what's the glue here? Um, so again, so, uh, an advanced concept that was that was present on the Newton. Well, it also sounds like uh, OpenDoc, which was at, like around the same time as the the height of the Newton, or maybe right as the Newton was uh, shut down. The kind of document centric model, and Apple tried to bring this to the Mac and get widespread acceptance, but I don't think it ever went very far. And that was another project that was axed upon the return of Steve Jobs. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the whole platform, even you know, as a developer who still pokes around in there sometime, like the whole the whole platform is very open in that with with very very basic, very freely available tools, you can navigate the whole structure of not only the storage but the applications themselves. So it's very easy to you know, patch or change or edit. Uh, it's a bad analogy, but you can imagine, you know, if if your entire operating system was essentially running something like a, a JavaScript engine, uh, back to maybe your widgets uh, episode, um, and, you know, you could fire up a text editor and edit, you know, the, the code. It's not quite that easy, but it, it you know, it is, it is very open and, to some extent, that was great because you can do a lot of things. But I also know that uh, it was a frustration for people who had intellectual property that they were trying to protect. Um, and so, you know, the the openness of the platform sometimes made it difficult for like, you know, uh, there was a cat and mouse game from Shareware at the time. And I, I know, I, like I said, I know some of the some of the developers uh, were very unhappy with with that that cat and mouse game. Uh, they found it hard to monetize their apps. I, I you know, same same problems today in a different form, but monetization was a problem. Um, but uh, you know, it, it it really does like lend itself to kind of that exploration and that reverse engineering. Now, years later, 
and I think that's one of the reasons that people still poke around with it because it's it's fun to fun to learn and and see how things were implemented and and you can do that in ways that like a closed platform like iOS you just can't. Hey, that's the real reason why the Newton had two PC card slots. <laughs> so <laughs> so much of the software was only available on PC cards. So if you want to have that in your modem or your uh, your own backup card, you needed to. Yeah. But on the on the subject of uh you know technologies that you see today, I mean there was the assistant feature, which was an early attempt at natural language processing. So you would write a note like uh lunch with Tom at two PM on Thursday at you know, Apple Cafe and <laughs> you know, you hit the assist button and it would make an, a calendar entry for you, uh or at least try to. Uh and, you know, it had it had very I I imagine limited syntax, but uh, those are features you see um, in, in apps like Fantastical and Siri today, um, you know, and uh, the Newton Interconnect port. There was a 26-pin connector, um, very similar to what eventually became the 30-pin connector. I don't know if they were related, but um, very similar looking at the le- at, at, at the very least. And you know, had multiple had audio, had power in and out, had. Um, had multiple serial channels, very similar to what eventually found up found its way onto the iPod. I don't know if they were related in any meaningful way, but you know, from the outside, they look very similar. Yeah, it seems like even just having the institutional memory of some of these Newton features around, even when the product is axed uh, later on, people just they know what can be done with the various bits of hardware and software, and and those kind of things aren't forgotten and and work their way back into into later projects where they've become useful to us now. Yeah, I mean, on Newton Talk the List, you'll see, like, you know, whenever Apple announces a, a, a new feature that has any relation to something that Newton had, um, you, you get, hey, look, you know, what's old is new. Here we go again. And, uh, you know, skew, skeuomorphism was, you know, uh, used in the Newton. I know that it's, uh, you know, out of vogue now, Um but uh, you know, it, the when you would delete a note, it would crumple it up into a little ball and throw it in the in the trash bin. Or those those share sheet, the the routing menu that that we talked about earlier. When you hit an e, when you send an email, a little envelope would come up, and you would address you know you would pick the address on where you would put the address. And if you had multiple email accounts, you would select the return address where the return address would be, and then you'd hit send, and it would fly off the screen and. Um, you know, there, it was sparingly used. I mean, we couldn't have, you know, a whole lot of that in, in, you know, four megabytes of ROM or eight megabytes of ROM, whatever it was. Um, but, um, you know, where, where it was, it, it, it still, I, I still delete things just for the fun of seeing the animation. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's almost similar to, uh, an iOS actually another, you know, if you delete an email in iOS, it gets kind of sucked down into the into the trash bin. Well, that's you know I think Newton did it first. Do you remember waiting in line for the first iPhone? I wasn't going to buy one. I was waiting with friends. Yeah, that that worked out real well. I bought one on day one, but it was it was crazy. You know, we were sitting in long chairs, and I had my message pad, and I was actually sitting there in the line doing the you know waiting game, about to buy a phone for six hundred dollars that we had never touched, never held before. And after I had bought it, you know, there were there's display tables and I, I got to sit down or, or you know stand with an iPhone for a couple minutes while my friends were like checking out and I remember going to the notes app and emptying the trash and seeing that animation and realizing that I could type with my fingers and that I really didn't need a stylus and thinking oh my god this thing is amazing and a lot of that you know amazing was kind of like this is the next step from uh, the message pad the noon that I had been using up until this point so um, I, I totally agree that there's there's some evolution and some knowledge that was kept on how to you know make these devices that carried on to things like the iPod and potentially the iPhone, maybe not directly, but kind of in the spirit um, that proved useful to Apple. Yeah, I, I still hope. I think a lot of old Newton users hope that handwriting recognition will eventually make a comeback. I mean, it, you know, it it had it had a very bad start and you know got a very bad reputation but by the end it really was very serviceable i mean i i took notes in class and uh you know 
once once you learn some some basic gestures i mean even even to this day i you know i remember you know in the early versions of ios when um it didn't have cut and copy i i i hoped that you know the the newton style gestures for cut and copy would come back because i just thought they were so great what you would do is you would hold the pen down at the start of your selection and you would and after it was held down for an instant it would turn into an ink blot and then you would drag that across your selection and you would basically highlight like it was a, as if your pen was a highlighter uh and then once your your text was highlighted you would grab the text and drag it to the edge of the screen and it would stick to the edge of the screen like Fitz's law like very quick like you can just you know flick this text to the side of the screen and it would stick a small little tag to the side of your, to the corner of your screen or wherever you put it. And then it would be there. And when you needed it back, you would just drag it from the screen and drop it where you wanted it. So you could switch apps, you could do whatever you needed to do. And, uh, you know, I just, I, to this day, I think that's one of the most clever uh, gestures in the operating system because it's something you do all the time. It leverages the fact that you, you know, the edge of the screen is a fast place to dock things. And, uh, you know, it, it was just like, seamless in the workflow and yeah every time i have to cut and copy paste cut cut and paste text in ios i just wince a little it's it's still brutal (laughs) it's terrible and you know it's like you know i i know it wouldn't necessarily be a perfect uh uh you know uh, application of that that gesture with the pencil it would be but um you know it's just it's it's, i feel like it's a problem that we still haven't solved you know years and years later yeah, you mentioned getting good at writing on the Newton, and maybe this will be a point for me to bring up my uh, non-Newton ways. But I think that if you put a uh, if you put a Palm device back in front of me, I could just I, I would start immediately writing in graffiti again. Like it was it uh, you know I learned that system and it was fairly natural to me. Although you said you know the co- copy and paste gestures, I feel like there were gestures and I couldn't not in any way, shape, or form recall what those were because they were not intuitive in that same way that the Newton clearly was. Um, so did either of you use uh, any of the competition in this era or later on? I had a handspring visor, and I completely agree with you. Like Jeff Hawkins, the uh, f- one of the founders of Palm, had st- started the uh, handspring company. You know, he, he, I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said, which do you think... Um, is easier to teaching a human to write in graffiti on a device that has limited capabilities or teaching a limited device to understand the diversity of human handwriting. And he definitely got that right. You know, the Newton was, it was a huge challenge to have it recognized script or, or handwriting um, off the bat. And they definitely improved. Um, but that is something that, you know, once you learn graffiti, you could probably go back and, and, and do it. And, uh, you know, they, maybe they were right. Yeah, I mean, that that is a tough problem, even teaching a human to read someone else's handwriting. I mean, I work in education and sometimes uh, even even today at work had to see a handwritten paper from a student that I've never met before. And, you know, you're supposed to be looking at you know how good is their writing, that is the content of their writing, not how good is their handwriting, which is atrocious and almost illegible. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's definitely turning the problem sideways is a, is a easier way to make a quick win on that. My wife actually makes fun of my handwriting and, you know, uh, not to be, um, you know, to, to broadly stereotype, but she says I have the handwriting of a little girl and I actually blame the Newton because I, you know, I, I, I I write very neatly um because um you know you wanted to reduce handwriting recognition errors um so it trained me but I mean it's um it's not a bad thing it's just you know where you know you 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 I lost some of the sloppiness because I you know didn't want to have to go back and correct and and there were nice gestures for correcting when you when you made a mistake you could quickly and and easily, you know, fix fix errors. But you know, it was much more efficient just to write legibly, and it would get your handwriting at like ninety eight, ninety nine percent of the time. Um, you know, unless it was some really weird word or or something that was not in your dictionary. 
Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it definitely worked by the end. And, uh, you know, it, it gets a bad rap with egg freckles and, and, uh, the Simpsons jokes, but, um, rightfully so for some of those early models, but, um, you know, it, it definitely came a long way by the time it reached its, uh, end state. Do either of you still regularly interact with a Newton today, whether on an original piece of hardware or through, uh, any of the emulation projects? So I still have message pads on my desk. I still use my message pad 130, which is like my favorite model. It's it's the thin, thinner kind of, um, well, not, maybe not thinner, thinner, but um, not as wide, um, taller message pad. The one that was famously designed by uh, Johnny Ive. And it's the more powerful of that form factor. And it's, you know, it can't get online. It can't really do wireless networking, but it can... Um, it's really good at taking notes and it has a backlight and it has a regular Mac serial port. So you can plug the Newton keyboard right into it. And that's the thing that I take with me uh, at work to meetings and take notes on. And uh, when I'm done with those notes, I, I actually beam them to a 2100 message pad that is connected via Wi-Fi. And so that's, that's like how I get my mail as I beam it to that. And that sends the email. Um, it, it's totally strange and eccentric, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still have a, a bunch of devices here. Um, I think I have, um, I still have my original message pad from uh, 1996. It's uh, an upgraded 2100. It's pretty beat up. Um, but I, I bought a couple other, uh, you know, ones on eBay over the years as they, you know, if I saw a really good deal on one, I'd grab it. Bought a couple of EMH just because, just last year actually, because. I wanted to see what one was like because I, I never had really experienced one. But uh, I'm a contributor to the Einstein project, um, and uh, you know, uh, you know, do some work on that from time to time, and build. Uh, you know, I, I built a uh, Objective C bridge for Einstein so that you know, with a, a Newton package, can call out to Objective C. So that was necessary because if you wanted to. Uh, say email a note you know the you needed a, you needed a way to bridge the gap across the emulated to the to the the base uh, os and so you know that that's one of the things that i added to einstein but um you know working on a, a sound bug that that uh causes the sound not to play correctly sometimes and some other things that haven't really tracked down but you know, it's it's part of the fun, like I said, of of reverse engineering and in and, and figuring out how how did this work and you know, you know how does the sound work or how does the uh, how does new how does the emulator itself work? It, it's just a learning experience. So when I have free time, I poke around. Yeah, and that project just celebrated a pretty big milestone release uh, as we record. I think just a week ago. Yeah, I know Stephen uh, Stephen posted uh, a binary, which uh, yeah, it was probably long overdue, but. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it was always, it was always serviceable if you, uh, if you compiled it yourself and with, with, uh, Apple opening up, uh, the ability to compile apps for your own device using your, you know, your own Apple ID rather than having to buy a developer account, it does give people the opportunity if you can get your hands on an app, uh, on a Newton ROM, uh, ROM file, um, you know, it gives people an opportunity to play with the Newton when maybe they haven't had the opportunity or the hardware previously. Very cool. And we'll definitely put a link to the Einstein project in show notes for this episode. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't, you know, take any credit at all. I mean, it's, it's standing on the shoulders of giants. Uh, I think uh, Paul Gio was the original author and it just boggles my mind what he accomplished in, in emulating, you know, hardware that, you know, we didn't have any documentation for. I mean, there's, there was documentation out there somewhere, but um you know, the community doesn't have it. And so, you know, figuring out how all that worked is just amazing to me. For me, the really big part about this uh, most recent release was for the longest time, the uh, Linux binaries uh, or the Linux source code wouldn't compile. So it was basically stuck on Mac OS X and iOS devices. And for me, uh, working at MIT, one of my little pastimes is trying to uh, compile 
software so that it can be shared with the rest of the MIT community. And uh, so being able to get this on on Linux and getting it on Raspberry Pi means that we can put it on hardware that it was never intended to be on, um, uh, cheaper than an iPhone, for instance. And so in some People are getting excited by, you know, the fact that they can put it on a cheap touchscreen and maybe the the Newton can live again or something like that. But I, I just am excited by the idea that more people can be exposed to it than uh, would be if they had to buy an expensive uh, Apple product. Yeah, I actually bought a, a touchscreen display for my Raspberry Pi. I haven't gotten around to playing with it yet, but, uh, you know, it's exciting that there, there was one one silly bug that Stephen identified that was causing a lot of problems uh, not only for the you know Mac OS and iOS builds, but was really preventing it from booting on on other platforms. And that one bug, I think, really opened up, and and that's uh, was what enabled that that most recent release. And pretty exciting. Yeah, all we need now is some enterprising 3D modeler to uh, share plans to get a Raspberry Pi and basic touchscreen in a case that looks like a Newton, or just uh, just make an uh, iPhone case that looks like one. There's a Kickstarter project for uh, <laughs> for someone out there. Someone did it. Uh, I've seen it. I, I don't know the history of it, but uh, I have seen an iPhone case that either looks like or was made out of Newton parts. Well, yeah, it's it's tempting for me also to go out and uh, actually get some of the some of the hardware since I've never really laid my hands on it. I feel like uh, you know there there's some argument to be made for, you know, like an e-mate as the ultimate distraction-free writing environment or something. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, who knows? Maybe I'll be, uh, maybe I'll be forced to actually, uh, go onto eBay and, uh, check out the Newton, uh, in the flesh as it were. Yeah. The e-mates are relatively inexpensive. I think, you know, they were meant for schools. And so, you know, I guess every once in a while a school cleans out a closet of, of these old things or something and, they go up on eBay relatively inexpensively. And if you're lucky, they even come with the RAM upgrade card or the uh, flash upgrade card. So you get, uh, it's still, it's still not quite uh, a 2000, but, but with that added memory, you definitely uh, get some better performance. Yeah. I know that our school got one, I like we think just on loan for two weeks and they said, yeah, eh, we're not going to buy like a full lab full of these things. So, uh, didn't wind up happening. And that was, that was the only time that we got to see a, an e-mate quickly go by but they, they are really i mean they're uh, of of all of the platform I and mean, they're one of the weirdest devices but also one of the, just the most beautiful devices um really one of the coolest looking devices that apple has ever made to be honest yeah it's uh it's from before johnny moved into his white room <laughs> yeah it's very much tam era though yeah i mean it, it definitely has personality and you know you can definitely see kind of in in, in some of those early uh you know, um, iBooks kind of the same design style, uh, that, that, uh, kind of came from the E-Mate, but, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, I don't think it was a very commercially successful product. Um, so, you know, I, I, uh, I, I don't think it kind of sold very well from, from what I recall, but, um, you know, you can get them pretty, pretty expensive. Even, even MessagePad uh, 2000 or 2100, you can find from time to time. Sometimes, sometimes people have like a, uh, misconception of how much what they've got are worth and they'll be like posted for exorbitant rates. But, um, you know, the, the, actually the harder, hardest thing to get is a battery tray because a lot of people back in the day invested in the NICAD battery pack, which are shot dead now. And so, you know, you to have that battery tray that you could just put regular outcome batteries in. Uh, sometimes that's the hardest part to come by. Well, yeah. So Newton, uh, may not have been the most, uh, financially successful line for Apple, but uh, it is really cool to see that it was, I think, a success in terms of advancing technology and technology that we're still all using today. So uh, it was really great to hear some additional details on it, set the record straight on some of our uh, hardware and software facts and figures, (laughs) uh, and to hear your experiences with it and how uh, it's a small but vibrant community still uh, going on today. Thanks for having us. It's uh, been fun to talk about it. Yeah, thank you. Yes, thanks to both of you. And so we're going to have lots of links to many of the things that were mentioned in this episode in our show notes, which are in the usual place in your podcast app or on our website at simplebeep.com slash episodes. And for Jake and Thomas, where should we find you guys on the internet? 
can find me at all about Jake on Twitter. I'm not really a prolific tweeter, but um, if I uh, if I have something to say Newton related, that's where I usually post it. And actually, recently just started a YouTube channel uh, under the name Retro Newton, where um, I intend to post a couple how tos to get people. Uh, up and running uh, with the development tools. So if someone wants to try their hand at building an app for the Newton, um, they can, you know, get a cheap shaver or basilisk instance up and running. And and uh, and, and t- the the documentation is very well written. So um, you know, just need to get past kind of that initial friction of getting a development environment, and then it's pretty easy to get started. So hoping that maybe we'll get some people interested. Awesome. We'll definitely send people there. And Thomas, how about you? Well, I'm Egg Freckles on Twitter and eggfreckles.net on the internet. And you'll know it when you see it. <laughs> you have a consistent brand. That That is uh, that is for sure. Yeah. Uh, you can find the show on Twitter as well. We're at simple underscore beep. And you can find me and Brian individually as well. I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. And thanks again to Jake Bordens and Thomas Brand for joining us, and we'll see you next time.